Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. It's a great, great big crowd. I'm so excited to be here for our special guest. Um, my name is Melissa Kane. I'm a longtime political analyst, journalist, lawyer. And over the years, I've interviewed easily 100 elected officials. And it might surprise you or not to know that I don't always get the feeling they're telling me the truth. <laughs> sometimes they just stick to talking points. Or what's worse is sometimes they'll tell you one thing off camera and then they get on camera and like, you know, the, the wall goes up and they're just giving you, you know, whatever they want you to hear. But our guest tonight never, ever did that. It was why I always loved interviewing her, because she told you the truth. And what she told you, she believes. And that's exactly what she did, and that's why she's going to do it again. <laughs> and I always appreciated that. Whatever you ever, even for people who disagreed with her politics, at least she always knew truthfully what she felt and where she stood. And she's done that for decades, and this kind of candor has endeared her to, uh, to her constituents. And she has fought for expanded access to abortion and restricted access to guns. Yeah. She's fought for greater access to justice for victims of sexual assault and harassment. She has fought for Bay Area values for so many decades. She is a force of nature, and I'm thrilled to welcome her here tonight for the exit interview, Congresswoman Jackie Speer. Do I, get, do I call you Congresswoman or? Call me that Jackie. That's what Jackie. Most we're friends. We're, we're, we're like this. Uh, <laughs> so I think I speak for everyone when I ask uh, what we're all wondering, which is do you have classified documents? <laughs> <laughs> and if not, why not? Very important question because <laughs> I served on the Intelligence Committee for eight years. So I went down to the bowels of the Capitol. Um, into um, a room, into a whole suite of offices and rooms, a huge door that I could have had a rotator cuff tear every time I opened it, <laughs> had to leave my phone, my Fitbit, everything outside. And then you go inside, you have meetings, you have hearings, you have uh, CIA officials and um, DIA officials come and testify, and you have documents that stamp top secret red on white paper on the cover of virtually everything. They were numbered. You never, ever got out of there mm -hmm. with anything. Mm -hmm. Now, um, of course it's different for a president or a vice president, um, but not that different. And I actually uh, fault those who were the custodians of these documents for not having a chain of custody so that, um, yes, the president has this information, um, but um, it's incumbent on the person that provided that information to have it returned because particularly for the highest ranking people in our country, those documents contain sources and methods and could out any number of uh, persons that we're um, using as assets in countries around the world. Um, so uh, there has to be a much cleaner method by which those documents are shared with the highest ranking people um, in our government. For those that serve on committees, I mean, there is a process and we follow that process. And I think that we've got to expect the same from the executive branch as well. Uh, so should we be concerned? Or there, ha there have been some arguments out there that, that the departments overclassify things. There is a fair amount of overclassification of documents. And I think we won't know the answer to that question until um, we see them. Now, there's a big difference between a president who voluntarily turns over documents and one who for over a year 
persisted in not turning over the documents. Um, and that shouldn't be lost on any of us. I mean, that's theft. When, you're, when it's, you're, it's identified that you have documents and you choose to ignore the archivist, um, you know, that's, that's theft. Now, I will also say, it appears that there's not enough teeth in the law as it relates to the archivist um, and his ability to extract the documents he needed. He couldn't do it. It, had, it was kind of, um, you know, please may I, as opposed to, and until he called on the FBI and the Department of Justice, um, there was no ability to get that. Now, you might wonder why it was that they ended up getting a search warrant. And they didn't do that lightly. And Merrick Garland wasn't about to do anything that looked like it was a wild goose chase. I'm pretty certain, and I think there's even been some um, references to someone on the inside staffing the president in Mar-a-Lago that provided that information to them. Um, what about President Biden? Uh, do you think that it was a good move to appoint a special counsel to, to look into to that issue? I mean, given Merrick Garland's a, an appointee? I think the attorney general had no choice. I think it was the appropriate um, action. And, you know, it's always interesting when you look at um, what would have been, could have been. I mean, he could have been a Supreme Court justice. Um, he's now serving as the attorney general. In some respects, I think his um, doing uh, probably uh, a more important role right now than he might have been as a Supreme Court justice. Although if he had been on the Supreme Court, he <laughs> might have had a different um, Dobbs decision. So, um, <laughs> um, and so you've been out of Congress now for a whole month, right? <laughs> and things have gone straight to hell. So... <laughs> Were you watching like the speakership battle, oh, of I just was. like with a glass of, of wine, laughing? No, I so wasn't. Hard. I was tweeting, and one of, one of my tweets went, I think, viral when I said, "You know, when Nancy Pelosi um, was the speaker, she knew how to count votes. She knew how to rail it, rein in her recalcitrant uh, members, and she did it in stiletto heels." Um, <laughs> <laughs> Backwards, <laughs> like Ginger Raj. No, um, what do you make of, of this, this idea that the Democrats were able to sort of hammer out the speakership issues? Because there were some from time to time in the caucus, and then you sort of everyone sort of sucks it up, and then you go out to vote. Um, tell us um, what goes on in those caucus meetings. What goes on in those caucus like, meetings? Like, do they cry? Do they demand weird things? Like, what's going on behind the closed doors among Democrats? before you all go out and do the thing. Oh, there's something kind of funny about Democrats and caucuses. Um, <laughs> because for the most part, what went on in the caucus was already news to the journalists before we walked out. Because <laughs> there were members who were always, you know, texting. Tweeting and texting. Yeah, like, it's, you know, going to get them brownie points or something. I don't know. Um, a lot of the um, caucuses uh, were, you know pretty mundane. I mean, you talked about the issues. You'd have speakers come in. Um, it was what happened behind the scenes. It was the other caucuses, whether it was the Congressional Black Caucus or the Progressive Caucus or the Blue Dog Caucus or the New Dem Caucus. I mean, it was when they would get together and see if they could move something, and then they would go to the speaker and, and try and convince her that they, um, they had the votes to mess up her schedule and then she would always figure out that no she did have the votes and, <laughs> <laughs> and I saw the the documentary that her daughter did I don't know if you've had a chance oh, of to course I was there it. for the opening night oh. where Alexandria was I don't know that her mom had actually seen it ahead of time um I, I, don't, I don't know that I would have allowed my daughter to have me on screen in my pajamas with no makeup on or talking to the vice president of the United States, fixing my bed, turning on the microwave, <laughs> doing all the important things relevant to everyday life since she wasn't hearing anything all that um, interesting on the other line. Um, <laughs> 
there's this one there's this one scene that where she's trying to it has to do with the Affordable Care Act and she's trying to get the votes that she needs and there's one vote that she she's having trouble with and so it's a it's a it's a congressperson from Indiana and so she calls the archdiocese um, of the district where this that this person represents and and calls you know literally a higher power to get this person to, to you know to on, you know, to get him to push you know some pressure on the um, on on this representative and that was just one example. Do you know where he is now? He's the ambassador of the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> She's got power. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, but I just mean, you know, are there other examples of things like that where you where you've seen her you know, twist arms, various, you know, pulling levers for recalcitrant people, only because it seems like something um, Kevin McCarthy could use some help with. <laughs> uh, she knew people's districts. She knew the names of the members' children. Uh, she knew what they wanted. She was. She was a master, um, and we are so lucky in this region that we had her um, leading our country for as long as she did. What, what is it about the Bay Area? I mean, if you look at Pelosi and Kamala Harris and Dianne Feinstein. It's and, all in the water. You know? <laughs> <laughs> is it the sourdough bread? Like, what is it? There, there are so many, even Gavin Newsom, I mean, so many um, extraordinary politicians coming out of, of this region. Is it, is it just something about the local politics or, or the, the forward-thinking ideas? What do you... Well, for the, for the longest time, most of the statewide office holders in California were from Northern California, if you think about it. Um, I think now we have one or maybe one Secretary of State who's from Southern California, but then again, she was appointed first. So, and Alex Padilla would have been another example. But um, it's very, it's, a, it's a, a democratic vote that's very strong and very um, committed in Northern California. So if you can gather the votes in Northern California, you can oftentimes, um, you know, beat down the numbers that exist in Southern California. Um, Mark Leno used to say, um, who was our local supervisor um, and also a member of the assembly, he used to say, and, and Senate, he used to say uh, it, was, it wasn't even fair because you would, you, the, the politics of San Francisco and politics in the Bay Area, the inter, inter-party politics in you know among democrats was so intense that by the time you get to sacramento i mean you're just getting you roll right over these people who were just the former president of their pta and now they're at the assembly like they don't stand a chance against folks who had to go with and deal with the party politics uh that we have here in the bay area do you think that that's well that's probably more true in san francisco than in other counties i would say i mean san francisco is you know Raw politics. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty bloody, <laughs> even today. Um, but as you watched the uh, the speakership uh, vote unfold, what, like, I guess what I'm trying to ask is if you could give Kevin McCarthy some advice. <laughs> this is a Don't family run, show. <laughs> <laughs> but if you could give him some advice <laughs> um, about how to deal with, you know, with members of your of your party that are kind of going off um, in, in different directions. What, what do you think you would do in a position like that? Well, he wanted this so desperately that he really was willing to sell his soul, and that's frankly what he did. I mean, put your seatbelts on. This is going to be one wild ride. Um, I don't know that, you know that um, Liz Truss little, um, it, it was something, I, I don't know, I guess it was online where they had a head of lettuce and then they had Liz Trust to see which one would last longer. Uh, the lettuce try one. Try it. <laughs> um, I think he's going to have a hard time. Um, but he wanted it so much. And he you know, lost it back in 2016, I guess it was, um, when um, he was in line to become speaker. And he had an um, extramarital relationship that... Um, prevented him from succeeding in that particular um, race. But... Um, it was a simpler time. That was a simpler <laughs> Now that doesn't matter. It's, it's so I, I think, um, you know, he, in fairness to him, he raised a truckload of money 
got a lot of people elected, some of whom were then um, very happy to vote against him until they got their pound of flesh. So, um, you know, he has, his hands are really tied. Do you, do you miss it or are you watching, or both, or are you watching and saying, you know, hilarious and I'm going to change the channel? I couldn't take my eyes off of the um, vote. How many of you are watching it? Yeah, it was, it was kind of like um, comedy and drama, and it was sort of like, um, at one point, um, I was you know, very intent on watching, watching it, and my husband said, come on, you know, you don't have to worry about the rest. It was 15 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, Do you wish you were back there? Or you're like, man, I wish I could have been there to see the almost fist fight. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard of how this all evolved. I mean, it, it wasn't my plan to leave Congress when I did. Um, it was my husband's plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had made a promise to him that mm-hmm. if I got sexual assault taken out of the chain of command um, in the military, that I would retire. And after that happened, I assumed that I could... Um, thank you. Thank you. It was a big deal. I thought that I could go and ask for, you know, a pass again, <laughs> and he didn't give me one. <laughs> so I had to keep my word. Um, well, so speaking of things that are normal now that aren't, maybe didn't used to be normal. It's hard to know. Um, George Santos. <laughs> um, I could not find another example of someone lying this hard about everything. I mean, D.C. is not exactly, you know, the Vatican. Um, but, but, you know, it's, but it seems like it, this is an extraordinary case. Like, what do, what do you make of this, and what do you think should or will happen? Well, you know, you can point the fingers at a lot of people. I mean, he is a defective person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, you know, a local weekly newspaper uncovered this, and the New York Times did not pick it up. So shame on the New York Times. Um, Congratulations to this weekly standard or whatever um, the name of it was. Um, And, you know, I would like to see how much money we actually, on the Democratic side, put into that race. because there should have been opposition research done to determine all of this, and if it wasn't done, why wasn't it done? So, you know, you can point fingers in a number of different places. The problem now is that um, he's there, um, he's a vote for the speaker, and he's not going anywhere until the uh, U.S. attorney the Justice Department takes action against him, which they will because he has um, lied under penalty of perjury in terms of his campaign statements. So, um, and he's probably laundered money. So I'm sure some of that is going to come out. The problem for Kevin McCarthy now is that he sucks all of the oxygen out of the room. So whatever their, what is their message? Who, their message is George Santos right now because that's all that people are talking about. Like, as a Democrat, is this not the worst thing that could happen to have this defective on the other <laughs> side that you can be like, look what they're well, bringing? It's, uh, it's just a sad commentary that in our society and in our culture now, lying is so commonplace. We had a president who lied thousands and thousands of times, and it was acceptable to significant part of the population. So um, I think that it's going to hurt all of us in terms of getting the work done that needs to happen in Congress. I mean, the debt limit is going to have to be raised. What do you make of of what's coming coming on that in terms of how that's going to potentially be negotiated? I know there's always a push for a clean lift of the debt limit, but is that even going to be possible? I think that there has to be a clean um, debt limit increase. I mean, it's kind of a, it's the simple way of, of um, defining it is, you pay, you buy things with your credit card. The end of the month, 
you have to either pay off that credit card statement or pay down that credit card statement. I mean, we have spent this money already. We don't have the luxury of saying, oh, we're just not, I mean, we've, it's the full faith and credit of this government that's at stake here. So um, Kevin McCarthy on Face the Nation yesterday said he was not gonna let that happen. So let's see. Um, they're going to try and extract any number of things out of it. But even when you look at the budget, when you look at how much of it is mandatory spending. I mean, it's money for Social Security. It's money for Medicare. It's money for Medicaid. It's money for Veterans Affairs. I mean, you've got just a very limited area of discretionary funding. You know what's under discretionary funding? Defense. And then some of the other uh, national parks. You know, the, when we ha actually had a government shutdown, I was really concerned about you know, people getting their checks and all those kind of um, daily needs. Do you know what the biggest issue was in the, in the American people? It was closing the national parks. So they are a, a jewel in our um, crown, but I mean, they're highly regarded by the American people and that was a big, a big hit. So you think that it will probably be maybe Democrats plus a few Republicans will get passed? So there's probably 10 to 12 Republicans who are maybe moderates um, and, who, and who don't want to see um, the debt limit breached um, by not raising it. So um, once they're given the okay by Kevin McCarthy to do so, um, they'll probably join the Democrats in doing it. Well, I know there are certain pieces of legislation around abortion and gun rights that Democrats would like to see put forward, but uh, is that pretty much shelved for the next two years now that we have Republican control? It's DOA. Do not expect anything on any of those issues. Um, it's very sad. I, I, you know, as a victim of gun violence, um, I feel really passionate about this issue. And for us as a country, to not have universal background checks is, I mean, that's, that's the lowest bar and we can't even get that passed, even though that's the law. The Brady law was you had to get background checks, but that was before gun shows and before internet purchases and before person-to-person -person purchases. And so all of those are not subject to background checks. So you absolutely need that. And we, you know, once we registered machine guns, you know, you can register a machine. You used to be able to register machine guns. Um, you know, there, all of that came under control. So registering guns would be another important thing. Why is it when we did pass this so-called reform bill after Uvalde last year, we couldn't get something as simple as no assault weapons can be purchased by anyone between the ages of 18 and 21. We couldn't get that in. Do you know what they got in? They were patting them, themselves on the back because, oh, we had just break, broken the log jam after 30 years of not being able to get any reform le legislation through on gun violence. It was a, a more enhanced background check if you're purchasing an assault weapon between the ages of 18 and 21. Now think of those who have been mass shooters who are between 18 and 21. They don't have records. So it would not have affected their actions. They would still have been able to purchase those guns. So it's a, it's a travesty. I was um, in Europe at the time, and I came back from a, a dinner, turned on the TV, and there were 14 people, 14 kids that had died in Uvalde. Overnight, it was 21. The next day I was meeting with the head of what our CIA is, I think it was in, uh, I think I was in um, Denmark at the time. And I asked them, how many mass shootings did they have last year? And he looked at me kind of, shrugged his shoulders and said, none. Now think of it, we have more mass shootings than there have been days in this year already. So then I came home and I had my staff do some research. There's about 400 
million people that live in the EU. It's 330 million people that live here in the United States. In 2020, it's the last year that we, I had um, data on both um, entities, in the EU there were something like 2,500 deaths by gun violence. In 2020, there were 45,000 gun violence deaths in the United States. It is abnormal. It seems like the NRA has declined in prominence. Is there a new, uh, or maybe it's more powerful and we're just not seeing it, but it seems like it's kind of, it had some budgetary problems, some leadership problems, and it seems to have, to have fizzled a bit, it appears. Um, are they still a force? And if not, is there a new, or is it more dispersed now? So uh, they are still a force, although they have been, um, I think, um, wounded somewhat. But there's the um, Gun Owners Association now. There's the manufacturers, the gun manufacturers. I mean, there are more guns in this country than there are people. Over 330, more than 330 million guns in this country. And I saw, I believe you were in Monterey. When? Um, recently, when after the... Did I did I see that right on on the Twitter um, <laughs> that you that you had gone down after the, the the recent shooting? Oh, in Half Moon Bay. I'm sorry, Half Moon Bay. I apologize. No, I was um, I was actually in Southern California at the time. Um, you know, that's a 67, and that's the other thing. These profiles of these two killers um, in Monterey Park and in uh, Half Moon Bay, they don't fit the profile. One was 67, I think. One was 72. Um, and what were the triggering events? The triggering event in Monterey Park had something to do with his ex-wife. Um, the triggering event in Half Moon Bay was the fact that his coworkers mocked him and that his supervisor had just fined him $100 because he was using a forklift and damaged something. And the $100 fine put him over the edge. So, um, and for the mo and, and in Half Moon Bay, they were all targeted. They were, he went after people who he felt had um, somehow um, harmed him, hurt him. So I think that there's a lot more that we have to do in terms of, well, we, We've got to rein in um, accountability relative to guns. Um, and I think registration has got to be part of that now. And the universal background checks and not letting kids buy guns until they're 21. Um, you know, why is a six-year-old have a gun in his backpack? Now, the other thing that we do know is that kids know when... An, another a kid has a gun or has the potential to shoot. They hear about no, That's why these community officers are actually helpful to have on school campuses because the kids are more likely to go and tell them. Oh, interesting. I did read that, that there was some knowledge beforehand, mm -hmm. which is... Yeah. baffling, <laughs> yeah. um, to say the least. I guess they're doing an investigation and... We'll see how that fell through the cracks. But that somebody did try to report. You know, I did a lot of work when I was, uh, I was chair of the Military Personal Sub Personnel Subcommittee in Armed Services, and we had a, a huge increase in the number of suicides in Alaska. So I made a number of trips to Alaska last year to try and see if we could fix this situation because it's remote. They're often alone. Um, they come from southern states, and then they're put in this you know, very cold environment. Um, and so I had a hearing, and one of the experts who spoke when asked, what, what, can, what can we do? It was amazing what he said. What he said was, uh, offer the service members gun safes or gun locks. Now that sounds pretty simple, right? But just the length of time it takes to put in the combination or unlock the gun safe um, is oftentimes enough to get the person to rethink doing it. 
it's impulsive. I mean, when we look at the gun deaths, of course, two-thirds of them are, are suicides. Two-thirds of that 45,000 number? Suicides? Wow. So wow. Um, in one of these cases, it was a, a staff sergeant just gotten back from visiting his family, um, was about to go to uh, a special program in Georgia and see some of his old buddies, went to Walmart, bought a couple of uh, video games so they could play him, uh, went back to his apartment to just pick up something, uh, left the engine running, went upstairs, shot himself. For five hours, that car was running before anyone figured out what was going on. So that impulse is something that we have to deal with as well. Uh, and that's going to have to be in 2025, I suppose, now that we've got yeah. a Republican-controlled controlled House, unless there are some moderates that could potentially vote with the de with Democrats, because we saw in the speakership vote, Democrats were pretty well disciplined to say you know, there was never, and I think the Republicans too, there was never any um, talk about helping each other out no, <laughs> about a couple that. of these guys kind of like that was never enough. Both sides were like, no, we will figure this out. We will literally fist fight each other before we will ask the other side for help. Uh, and so the both sides kind of dug in, but, but one hopes that, I mean, aside from the speakership, debate that going forward there could be more cooperation on more substantive issues like the debt ceiling or potentially you know even a little bit of some of the issues that that we've been talking about there will be very very little um, compromise i mean only on something as big as the debt ceiling will you have members kind of crossing over i think that would be my expectation having watched the process as long as i have um Okay, on a lighter note, um, do you, we're all doomed, there you go, um, at least for two years. Um, so is there anyone, are there any Republicans who uh, sort of have a persona that they portray on like Fox News or other Newsmax or other really conservative outlets that you found to be sort of closeted? Nice guys? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and normal. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many of them are. Where you can sit down, have a, you know, a, a great conversation, uh, get to know them. Uh, Jim Banks was my ranking member on Millpers for a period of time. Um, we had long conversations about um, his children who had some issues. My one of my children had had some learning issues, and so we were, you know, talking about them. I gave him a book that I thought would be very helpful. Then you'd see him ranting, and you'd think you were, talk you were dealing with a di whole completely different person. Uh, are there any others like that? Is Matt Gates secretly, like, really nice? <laughs> <laughs> Matt Gates loves himself. <laughs> <laughs> and he's only been eclipsed by, um, you know, his... Um, his his new colleague that uh, is taking some of the you know is that Bobert no or no no Marjorie I'm, I'm talking Green? about um, our liar <laughs> oh George <laughs> George <laughs> George is taking the heat taking oh he's taking, taking the spotlight, the spotlight. <laughs> no I mean they are provocative intentionally and that's pretty obvious they say something incredibly provocative and then they fundraise off of it that's the MO. And that's something that um, John Boehner said. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he basically said, look, you know, they, they're looking for the, the clip mm -hmm. uh, to play on Fox News. They're not really necessarily looking to get something specific done. Is there anyone on the Democrat side who does things like that? I wouldn't tell you their names if I thought of them. Oh, come on. I said you tell the truth. <laughs> I'm trying to think who does that on the Democratic side. Um, you know, there's some members that, um, and they could be different depending on what the issue is, that will say something that they, you know, believe it, and then will fundraise off it right away. Um, and, and that's, you know, the, the elephant 
um, in the room, I said, I guess the donkey in the room, uh, <laughs> that we, um, money controls so much of what goes on back there. Now, you're in a safe Democratic district, but uh, one of the things that has always struck me as like the least fun part of being in Congress is the fundraising and dialing for dollars. Now, it, your, your constituents love you, you know, once you're in, you're in, but so maybe it wasn't as, as much of a task for you as some other folks who are in more difficult districts and need more money. But, but how much of your time did you spend uh, fundraising? I spent very little time fundraising. That's I would do um, a big birthday, what I would call the birthday bash every year in the district, and that would raise $200,000. Um, I did smaller events in D.C., but, um, and I would, you know, two weeks before the event, I would make phone calls. But I did not. There are some members that are in what are called marginal districts, and they are expected to be on the phone for five to seven hours every day. Think about that. So they show up to committee either, you know, when you could zoom in, or, you know, they come into the committee room, and then 10 minutes later they leave. So they've registered as being present, and then they go and have to make phone calls. One of my colleagues spent, I mean, worked so hard and raised so much money, I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars, um, and lost her election by you know, a very small margin. She's, after all that, gone. I mean, how are you supposed to legislate with exactly. all that? Exactly. With that I mean, that's the real question. You know, when I got to Congress, I was pretty shocked at the system because in the state legislature, you introduce a bill, you get a hearing. Um, if you can't get the majority of the members there to vote for it, then you lose the bill. But if you can get a majority to vote for it, then the bill moves through the process. In Congress, all these bills that people introduce, most of them, I'd say 95% of them, never have a hearing. Now, their bill might be an amendment at some point in a bigger bill, but those are often few and far between. Well, I think some of the the changes that the the holdouts for the speaker's race wanted to see were things like more votes, more amendment, an open what's called an open rule, so that anyone could um, you know put in an amendment and have it in order to be taken up. Now, when you have open rules, you can guarantee you're going to get very little done because there's going to be long debates on each of these amendments and if let's, let's say just you know a quarter of the members would introduce amendments that's still you know a hundred amendments for every bill having said that do you think that congress is too small and by that i just mean we're we're such a long way from what the founders envisioned for in terms of one representative for every thirty thousand people now we are we are far beyond that um would you support or do you think that there, there's room for debate over whether there should be more members of Congress because, because there's just you, there's such a distance? I mean, not with you, of course, but other, <laughs> other people. Sorry. Um, well, you know, some members have entire states, right? Mm -hmm. Look at Wyoming. You have one House member and two U.S. senators. Um, you know, what our founding fathers had cobbled together, and it was remarkable at the time, they did it in a short period of time, and it's last for 240 years. Um, but when you realize that California and our population, we have two senators, it would equal the population of 11 different states to equal California's population. So 22 US senators to our two. So, I mean, you really have a situation where um, one person, one vote, and equal representation is, is somewhat um, skewed. Now, if I had my way, we would have a unic unicameral legislature. Because what happens, you can pass all the bills you want in the House, but the Senate never takes your bills up, right? So if you had it, if you had a unicameral legislature, then you know, you're going to be dealing with all of these bills in one house, and there's some equal power. 
I think the French tried that. <laughs> Didn't go well. Uh, so is that a yes or no on whether you think there should be more more representatives of, in Congress so that they are... They're, representing fewer people? They're representing people. fewer people. I don't know that that would improve anything. It's just going to magnify what we already have. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Fair enough. Um, okay, so... Who, uh, who does the poker game? We know there's a poker game. <laughs> who controls the poker game? Um, I don't know that there's a poker game. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, if there are poker games, they're, they're not played in the Democratic cloakroom. <laughs> if they're being played, they could possibly be pay, played in the Republican cloakroom. There was a, what was called a Board of Education room in the Capitol, and it was where uh, Sam Rayburn did have poker games, and they drank, and they smoked cigars in this Board of Education room. Um, and it, it, the speaker has control of it. Um, speaker Pelosi, in her inimitable fashion. So in this room, beautifully painted murals. There's a big um, lone star. Um, on one wall because Sam Rayburn was from Texas. Mm -hmm. So before she left as speaker, she had two murals done on the sides. One was of the Golden Gate Bridge, <laughs> and the other was of the suffragists. I'm sure, I'm sure Kevin McCarthy loves that. <laughs> I love that. But do Democrats have any game? Do you have cornhole? What do you guys do? Where are the deals done? Uh, you know, if, they, if they're playing poker, um, it, I've been, not been invited to play. Oh, okay. All righty. So, um, so we have a question here. What's the future of universal health care coverage in California? This audience member wants to know. Well, we have a superlative program now um, and covered California is there for um, you know Californians who don't have insurance through their government employment um, and it is and continues on a federal level um, also to be subsidized so that the monthly payments are reduced based on your income level um, in terms of getting Medicare for all if that's what the question is, so. um, you know, if you look at countries in Europe, that's, that's their world. That's how they do it. Um, but we're not there yet. So um, the Affordable Care Act will go down as one of Speaker Pelosi's greatest um, achievements. And we're very lucky that we have it. Uh, and a question here. Uh, what is next for Jackie Spear? What is next for Jackie Spear? Um, so I, I just made the, the point over and over again that I wasn't retiring. I was coming home to make good trouble. And um, <laughs> that's what I plan on doing. Uh, one of the things that I have done um, is I started a foundation in San Mateo County, um, and I seeded it with a million dollars that was left in my campaign coffer. And uh, it's for women and children. And my goal is to eradicate childhood poverty in San Mateo County. And if we do it there, um, I want to see it done throughout the nine Vieira counties. Um, to put it in perspective, yes. San Mateo County is the fourth richest county in the country. There are some 3,000 counties and we're the fourth richest. We have um, 20 billionaires that live there. We have uh, 5,000 millionaires that make $4.1 million on average. And 90% of their giving is nationally and internationally. So we've got 23,000 kids who live below the federal poverty rate of a family of four living on $27,000 a year. We've got 21 kids that are um, homeless. We've got an increase in domestic violence of 20%. Highest increase in food stamp pickup in the entire state. So I make that case to say that 
Um, we have hiding in plain sight, a lot of poverty. We have it here in San Francisco, we have it in counties in the Bay Area, um, and yet um, we're not fixing the problem, so I'm hoping to do that. Uh, excellent. Um, now, I know the answer to this because I read your wonderful book called Undaunted, available at reputable booksellers. <laughs> uh, and and this, this question is though, when did you meet Senator Feinstein and how did her career impact your own? Ah. So I met her when I was um, on the Board of Supervisors, and she was the mayor. And we would have meetings from time to time between the two counties. Uh, and that's how I um, first met her. She took me under her wing uh, a little bit because she saw parallels in our lives because her um, second husband um, died and she was widowed, uh, Feinstein. and. Um, my first husband was killed in an automobile accident when I was pregnant with our second child. Um, so we sort of bonded on um, that experience. Well, also in your, in your book, Undaunted, available at reputable booksellers, uh, it, you talk about how you were literally on the, in the hospital uh, after being shot at Jonestown and, and found out that Harvey Milk and, and, oh. and Mary Moscone had been shot. I mean, this is all happening... So, Very close um, to each other. Guyana, um, the, the horrific incident in Guyana where Congressman Ryan was assassinated happened on November 18, 1978. Uh, ten days later, Mayor Moscone um, was assassinated and Diane Feinstein became mayor. Uh, I was in, um, at the Baltimore Shock Trauma Center because I had gas gangrene through my body and they thought they were going to have to amputate my arm and or my leg. So they gave me these hyperbaric chamber treatments where they infused your body with um, oxygen. It was a very unpleasant experience. And I was coming out of one of those dives as they referred to them and the doctor came up to me and says, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, Mayor Moscone has just been assassinated. And I'm, you know, in what looks like a, 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 a um, lung machine, and I'm thinking the world was coming to an end. I just mm. thought that it was, and there was obviously nothing I was going to be able to do about it. But certainly lots of um, moments mm -hmm. shared in, in a cosmic way with, with Dianne Feinstein. Um, so this person asked, what is the best thing, anything, Democrats can do for the next two years? I am looking for any ray of hope. <laughs> we appreciate your candor. <laughs> Um, what can we do? Um, well, I think it's going to be very important to, we're, we're lousy messengers. Um, we don't stay on message. Um, I hope the Democratic caucus is going to come up with a message that um, is resonant with the American people. And we have to um, be prepared to offer alternatives to what the Republicans are going to be doing. I mean, it's going to be um, one character assassination attempt after another. I mean, they're going to go after Anthony Fauci. They're going to go after um, the Secretary of Homeland Security. They're going to probably you know, go after Hunter Biden. I mean, they're going to make this um, as much as they can an indictment of um, policies around COVID, um, policies uh, around the border, and um, a, a corruptness that, that they perceive that um, Joe Biden is engaged in. I mean, the, uh, it is kind of breathtaking to think that they can, um, they can do all of this with a straight face. I think they're going to find that they're, they're not very effective at doing it. But I think Democrats um, should continue to uh, propose legislation that's going to um, fix um, what ails us. I mean, I think everyone's concerned about inflation um, and, um, and, and try to lift the burden that people feel. I mean, 70% of the population right now thinks that we're going in the wrong direction. So we've got to find some ways to um, make them feel that um, we care. 
best way you can do that is spending a lot of time in your district, and I hope that's what my colleagues will do. You see, I bet you're glad we have a Senate now. <laughs> 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 okay, a uh, question here. Um, Republicans seem to look at Democrats as the enemy. Uh, and I think the question is just sort of a, a cry for help. Uh, it's, but I just say, I think this person is concerned about the level of vitriol and, um, and dehumanization that is scary because that usually precedes or often can precede something, you know, truly terrifying. So, you know, it really goes back to Newt Gingrich. He's the one that really changed the dynamics in Congress. You know, when Tip O'Neill was the speaker, he would sit down with President Reagan and they would find ways to negotiate. People also, Republicans and Democrats, would get to know each other, their families, their children. Um, it, you know, it created an environment where you, know, you, would, you would listen to each other more. But Newt Gingrich created this um, model that, frankly, has just taken hold. And it goes on regardless of who's in power now. It's all about winning the next election and defeating the other party. What can you tell us about Hakeem Jeffries? Now, we're spoiled here in the Bay Area. We've had Nancy Pelosi for so long being either the speaker or the minority leader. Uh, and so now there's this new person. Um, what's he like? He's um, obviously an, a gifted orator and will uh, given the opportunity, will be spellbinding, I think, uh, for the American people to listen to. He's um, fairly reserved. He's um, very thoughtful. He is going to have to learn on the job, though. It's, um, it's going to be challenging with the Republicans. But um, just with this you know, early salvos uh, in pushing back on... Um, the Republicans, I, he certainly has what it takes to be very effective. Um, he's a very good man. All right, good to know. Uh, and we think that's why, um, so Nancy Pelosi, of course, stepped down from the speakership, but still was remaining in Congress, you know, hopefully standing by as a mentor. And She doesn't want to play that role. I mean, you know, she was asked to speak, uh, to sit behind Hakeem during the speaker's battle, and she chose not to. She was sitting way in the back with some of the other California members. Um, she doesn't want to fundraise anymore. I mean, after you know, raising a billion or more dollars over the course of her career, um, I don't think that, if you want to know my opinion, I don't think she's going to be there for, um, for very long. I think I, I see an ambassadorship in her future myself. Ooh. Oh, boy. Well, there's no shortage of, of hopefuls here in San Francisco uh, who, who would love that. Uh, so uh, how do we stop alternative fictions, a.k.a. Trumpism, um, from turning into alternative facts? Well, they already have, haven't they? <laughs> I mean, we have these echo chambers now. I mean, we used to have, you know, three TV stations, right? And you flip from one to the other. Now you've got um, your buffet of what to watch. And they have become echo chambers of whatever the particular philosophical bent is that you are. So, you know, we tend to listen to people that think like we do. I encourage you to spend 20 minutes listening to Fox News every night. See if you can do 20 minutes of listening to Fox News. I try to do it, and I, I, you know, I lose it after about 10 minutes. I just can't handle it anymore. And Fox News isn't even, you know, the, the right views Fox News as being... Oh, it's not... It's, cream puff. It, yeah, that's right. It's They're too tame. They're on Newsmax yeah. and, you know, these other, these other yeah. outlets. Uh, somebody asked here, can the debt limit be repealed? Like, can we stop doing this thing? This little Every, dance? Yeah. Yes, it could. It was a... A law that was put on the books, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, it, it really should be repealed because it, it makes no sense. There have been bills introduced to do that. Um, and, you know, they get nowhere in the Senate. 
Um, what TV show is most accurate at portraying Washington? What TV show? Um, that's a hard one. Um, throw out some names of shows. Okay, uh, West Wing, Veep. Uh, there's, uh, oh, who's, what's the Kevin's? Oh, House West, of Cards. House of Cards, I'd say. Um, <laughs> House of, there's a lot of House of Cards um, going on. <laughs> those, you know, those, <laughs> those poker games you were talking about, yeah, there, there, there is a fair, I mean, it was slightly to the extreme, um, but yeah, there, there is some of that. West Wing, I'm not as familiar with because I don't work in the White House, but... Um, uh, well, I'm just glad you didn't say Veep, because <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's always a little scary. Um, this person wants to know, what are you most proud of? Mm. My kids. Wow. <laughs> Legislatively, I mean, all right, yeah. I guess she was, <laughs> here she was asking. Um, you know, there, there are, um, I think in the state legislature, getting uh, financial privacy through was probably... Um, my biggest achievement there, although I did a lot of work on uh, consumer protection as well. In Congress, um, I'd say um, changing the leadership's perspective within the military about the people that serve. Um, I think for the longest time they were just... um, cogs in a wheel and uh, they're people and you're not going to be able to recruit good talented uh, service members if you treat them like S so (laughs) um, I'd say you know getting sexual assault cases taken out of the chain of command 20,000 men and women are sexually assaulted in the military every year only 5,000 report because they don't trust the system that hopefully now is going to change because we're taking them out of the chain of command. They're going to be independent prosecutors and investigators that are going to handle those cases. Um, but um, pediatric cancer, we, I did a lot of work on pediatric cancer, and we're now increasing the amount of research in pediatric cancer. It was 1% um, before, now it's closer to 8%. Something I worked with with um, Congressman Mike McCall from... Um, Texas, a Republican. So, you know, it's an example where you can do a lot of bipartisan work as well. Um, I didn't get the ERA passed. Um, That's one of my big regrets. Um, And I um, got um, the breast cancer research stamp renewed, which I'm pleased with. So those were some of the, the measures I'm most pleased with. Do you miss anything? Yes, I miss it all. <laughs> <laughs> what don't you miss? I don't miss the commute. <laughs> it was who so don't nice. you miss? <laughs> who don't, who don't, who don't you miss? <laughs> Are there any Democrats you will not miss? I would never tell you. <laughs> well, it's worth a shot. I tried. <laughs> you were here. Okay. Um, this person wants to know, can you imagine a scenario in which Congress, <laughs> boy, can you imagine a scenario in which Congress can become responsive again to the public interest and the middle class? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that the sooner we have the next generation of leaders taking over Congress, the better off we're going to be. Um, I do think that we are stuck. And I think uh, whether it's gun violence, transgender, gay rights. I mean, they're not issues for younger generations. I mean, the baby boomers need to exit left. Um, And the sooner all of us get out of there, um, you know, it's it's time for another generation to lead our country. this person wants to know, if there are more guns than people, then can we buy them back and destroy them at 5000 or $10,000 per weapon? I feel like that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Uh, but I will say this. I, during my time in Congress, 
I funded seven or eight gun buybacks. And it was really eye-opening. I did some in here in San Francisco, because I represented part of the city, and I did some in San Mateo County. Um, there actually was a machine gun that was returned. There were sawed-off shotguns. There were three or four Uzis. Um, there were guns that had the serial number scratched out, which suggests that they were probably crime guns. Um, that, in, a, in an area where you, know, you would suggest it's pretty peaceful. Um, I remember this one gentleman, I was walking along the line of cars, and we had all the you know, sheriffs and police out there, because you're, you're dealing with um, guns that could or could not be loaded. And there's this gentleman in his car, and he's got this revolver on, his, on the seat next to him. And I said, thank you for bringing your gun in. He says, yeah, you know, my wife and I got this as a wedding present. I don't think we need it. <laughs> right mind gives someone a gun as a wedding present. I mean, it was on the registry, so. <laughs> I mean, it'd be rude not to. <laughs> uh, might you run for office again? I know there's a Senate seat that might be coming up uh, here soon, or you can say I'm not you, running you might get a Senate. pass for something No, else? I'm not getting another. I can guarantee you I'm not getting <laughs> another pass to go back to Congress. Um, I don't know what's in the future, um, but it's not going to be Congress. All right. Well, I just lost 20 bucks. So. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Um, all right. This person wants to know, what about a compromise of 50% in service cuts and 50% tax increases on the wealthy? I don't know. That seems symmetrical, but I feel like that might not be. <laughs> so the problem is that there's all this mandatory spending that takes up close to 50% of um, the budget. Um, so then you're left with a much smaller universe. You've got, as I said, national defense. You've got um, these social programs like um, uh, food stamps and um, mental health and uh, and then you've got some veteran benefit programs and national parks. So if, if you have to take, the cuts would have to be so draconian to those programs that you would, you would zero out some of them. So um, don't forget that there was this massive tax cut that was provided to the wealthy under um, President Trump that is um, adding to that debt. It was, I think, over a trillion dollars adding to that debt. So uh, I think that the solution is, is going to be complex. And it's going to require us to um, you know, do a lot of soul searching about what's important. Do we want seniors to be able to live, their, live out their lives with a certain degree of um, prosperity? I mean, Social Security came into um, place when the people in poverty were mostly seniors at the time. People don't save much money for retirement. It's close to like, I don't know, $50,000 is what the average person has in retirement money set aside. Um, so uh, it's not going to be easy, but it's, it's going to, I personally would like to see a flat tax because, you know, the wealthy always find ways to get around paying taxes. If everyone had to pay, you know, 15, 20%, except those who made under X number of dollars. Um, I think we would have a, um, a more equitable system. But the income inequality in this country is huge. And for the 90% you know, of the population, their income has not gone up much at all. But those in the top 10% and those in the top 1%, 
their income has skyrocketed, even during COVID. So the equalization has to happen in, in that manner, I think. Uh, we have time for one last question and then we have a special presentation for you. Okay. So, um, don't go anywhere. Um, but so the final question I have for you is in your book, Undaunted, um, you write um, a lot about your life's purpose and, and how that is something you think about and yeah, something that, that is important to you. And you write that your life's purpose um, is to advocate for people who are not in a position to advocate for themselves. Uh, so... Are we there yet? Did you do it? Well, how I, do you feel about your where you are in your in your journey? So I think I've done it for you know a number of groups of people um, that are um, are voiceless, but I still think there's more to be done. That's why I'm coming home to do it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Uh, many thanks to Jackie Spear for joining us today for today's exit interview program at the Commonwealth Club. We want to thank everyone who attended this program live here today, as well as the folks who are joining us online. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts to make vo both the virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.